So hello, everybody. I'm Paul Menig with Business Accelerants. Each of these interviews gives me an opportunity to explore the seven forces affecting business and how to redirect those forces to help your business to grow, to give you more time so that you can enjoy life as business owners and business leaders. So with me today is Scott Crabtree. He calls himself the Chief Happiness Officer and is the owner of Happy Brain Science. Now he's worked with some impressive organizations, including DreamWorks, Nike, and Boeing. And today we're gonna to be talking about that internal force in your business, the thing that's your most important asset, your human capital. So welcome, Scott. Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Paul. Now, this is gonna be interesting. Uh, we had a chance in advance to talk about seven questions uh, in advance. And I think we'll start with those. And I am certain that we are gonna end up having the conversation move in some other directions along the way. So the first question has to do with what I always learned was positive mental attitude. Uh, you know, I learned it, you know, for decades, and I think I can even go back to Aristotle and Plato and find that they talked about it. And even the Bible talks about having a positive mental attitude. But I know that, especially with MRI stuff since around 2005, we've been able to associate what really happens from a scientific perspective in the brain and positive mental attitude. So what does this brain science tell us about being positive versus negative? So positive mental attitude simply works. Now, it sounds corny. It sounds cliche. I warn my audiences when I'm about to talk about positive mental attitude that if they're bothered, bothered by cheesy sounding stuff, be warned. Here comes some cheesy, corny sounding stuff. But I talk about it nonetheless because it simply works. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about what can lead to happiness. If you watch television for an, an afternoon, you might learn or be told in commercials that happiness is going to come from certain, certain sports cars and perfumes and prescription drugs. And all of that is total baloney. Science can help us actually figure out what makes a difference in our well-being, and our happiness, and more. And the bottom line is that positive attitude works. Now, it can be overdone. If you're just always positive about everything, no matter what's going on, that might not be realistic and might not be helpful. And excess, unrealistic positivity can get you into trouble, right? We've all made mistakes where we've just been like, what could possibly go wrong? And then something does go wrong because we're not being careful enough. But for most of us, most of the time, a more positive attitude will lead to more happiness, which leads to better brain function. So there is a virtuous circle here. Very loosely speaking, for the sake of uh, time, slightly simplified. The human brain, when it is stressed out, when you're going toward fight or flight, which is not a switch, it's a continuum, to whatever degree you are stressed out, your brain is figuratively shrinking. Your limbic system and brainstem, which together look like the brain of your average mammal, if you have a dog or cat, their brain looks a lot like your limbic system and brainstem, those parts of the human brain go to the forefront when we're stressed out. And under those conditions, we really see three and only three solutions to problems. Fight, run, 
or although you hear about it less because it doesn't rhyme, number one response to immediate stress is just freeze. Because if you shut up and stay still, the mountain lion might not see you and you might get away that way, which is a great way of dealing with mountain lions and not so great way of dealing with business problems or colleagues. So when we adopt a positive mental attitude, we feel better. We look at things more positively. We feel safer. And in that mode, our uniquely human brain real estate, loosely speaking, right under our skull, comes online, goes to the front burner, if you will. And we're able to think better, cope better, make better decisions, take better action. So adopting a positive mental attitude leads to happiness, which leads to better brain function and makes things more likely to actually be positive in our lives. So I've always learned that um, positive mental attitude or happiness to some extent is a choice. Absolutely. And, and I, I know how it works for me, but I don't know how to help somebody else make that choice. Uh, I deal with a lot of people who are complainers and whiners, maybe, uh, would be my way of labeling them. Uh, and I don't know how to help them see the positive side. All the, you know, the, the, the one that I get most often is, well, I'm a realist. I'm not a pessimist. No, that's not the way I see it. So how do I help them choose happiness? Well, those are the two words that really anchor my career, Paul, is choose happiness. If you look at the data, and here's how I try to reach people is, look, I spent over six years at Intel. Uh, the former CEO of Intel, Andy Grove, had a quote that we often repeated in the meetings and hallways of Intel. And that quote is, everyone has an opinion. Some people have data. So I try to ground everything I do in solid scientific data. And the solid scientific data suggests that happiness is largely a choice. Again, this is very high level, a bit oversimplified. I do not want you or your listeners, watchers thinking, oh, this is exactly how it is. But some scientists looking at a very broad set of data they feel that about 50% of the difference between my happiness level and yours and somebody else's is due to genetics. Some of us are born looking at the glass half full. Some of us are born looking at the glass half empty. There's a strong genetic component to happiness. What was very surprising to me and may, maybe to some of your listeners is that on average, again, these are sweeping averages here, but on average, all of our life circumstances is only about a 10% impact on the difference in our happiness between one person and another person. What? How can that only be 10%? Because fundamentally we adapt to everything in our lives. So whether you're driving a Saab or a Subaru or riding the subway, whether you live in a big house or a small house on the east side or the west side of town, all those circumstances we adapt to. And they end up making a pretty small difference. There's always exceptions. If you put me in a war zone and torture me, I will be miserable. But for most of us, most of the time, all of our life circumstances, relatively small impact on our happiness. So that leaves the 40% that I focus on and you're focused on as well. What we choose, what scientists call intentional activity, what, what's going on between our ears has a significant impact on our well-being. And I should add that the genetic factor is not a life sentence. Neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to rewire itself, which is nothing short of miraculous to me when you think about it. Our brains can think thoughts 
that rewire our brains. <laughs> but if you don't believe that, you say, well, that's just the way I am. That's just the way I am as a cop-out. That's just the way you are so far. Now, we don't change our personalities with a snap of the fingers. But if, for example, you and I practice writing down things we're grateful for in great detail most days for a month, we could see our brains change. We can see structures change in the brain in under a month, thickness of pathways, etc. So that genetic factor is there and it's strong and it's not a life sentence. We can change who we are with enough intention and repetition and effort. So that neuroplasticity also relates to where uh, it's the new year. People are making New Year's resolutions, uh, but they could make a February 1st New Year's new resolution as well. And I, lately I've been hearing different numbers about, well, does it take 30 days of doing something different in order to reprogram ourselves or 60 or 90 days? What What are you seeing the science tells us about how we, what we need to do to retrain our brains and take advantage of that neuroplasticity and get a new positive sort of thing going in our life? That's a great question. And I don't think science has a solid answer on this. So the number I hear the most often is 21 days, 21 days to a new habit, 21 days to a new year. I think it depends. What, what, what science is pretty clear about is how habits are built. And, and to me, the habit sets up the brain wiring to change. The, the, the way neuroscientists put it is neurons that fire together wire together. So if you well, do something before, yeah, if you do something repeatedly, it's going to start building a circuit in your brain for that activity. So what you need first is a way to do a, an activity repeatedly. So that gets us into habits. And the science about habits is we need a cue. What's going to remind us? We need the activity itself. And we need a reward for that activity that helps cement that habit. No, no, so, wait a minute. That sounded like getting a dog to uh, do something on command to me. I uh, yeah. I mean, we <laughs> share. I'm not an expert on this, but I believe we share 98 or 98 98 or 99 percent of our DNA DNA with dogs. Now, I'm not calling you or anyone else a dog, but genetically, we are extremely similar to all other mammals. I mean. Broadly speaking, right? So, look, we, we need to trick ourselves into rewiring ourselves sometimes. So, um, Barbara Fredrickson is a wonderful happiness researcher, and she says uh, Nike's just do it should be just enjoy it if you want to make a positive and change in your life. Because if you enjoy something, you're going to do it again. And if you do it again, you're going to start wiring up your brain to do that activity well, want to do it, etc. So how many days does it take to change our brain? Again, I, I know with, with certainty that we can see a, a physical change in your brain in under a month if you do something repeatedly and intensely enough. If you're practicing something every day, but not putting much attention into it, not putting much effort into it, not really building the habit, you could go over 60 days and not be changing your brain, in my opinion, which is somewhat informed by the science. But again, I don't think the science is crystal clear on here's how long it takes to rewire your brain, depending on how you're doing it. Okay, so you mentioned Intel, and then I mentioned, you know, you've worked with Boeing, and you mentioned Nike. So a lot of companies have the idea that they want to be on the list of best place to work. 
Okay. So today they are the worst place to work. <laughs> How, what, what do they need to do in order to get people to be happy in the business and choose happiness as employees? Well, <laughs> I have about a 10 hour answer for you, which I will try to keep under 10 minutes here. Or they can hire you to, to give the 10 hour answer. <laughs> exactly. So um, keep in mind, I basically talk for a living, Paul. So you interrupt me anytime if I'm going into too much nerdy detail. Let's quickly separate employee engagement from employee happiness. Employee engagement is caring about what you do, wanting to give it your best effort. It's not necessarily working 24 seven, but if you get some discretionary time or energy, you're gonna put it into the work because you are emotionally committed. That's employee engagement, you care. Happiness, scientists usually prefer terms like subjective well-being. We're talking about positive emotions and also a longer lasting sense of meaning, uh, impact in life, so to speak. So. When companies want to get on a great place to work list, they're often talking about both because the th most thriving organizations have both engagement and happiness. Let's talk about the happiness side for the sake of trying to keep this relatively short. In my workshop, I call the science of being happy and productive at work. I have four themes. So lots of specifics in these themes, but for the sake of brevity, for now, the introduction is four themes. One is cope effectively. I call this section subdue stress because as everybody knows in early 2021, stress is inevitable. Hardships are inevitable. Science cannot help us avoid hard times. What science can help us do is cope effectively with those hard times. And a big difference between low stress, high happiness people, and high stress, low happiness people is how effectively we cope. So look, I'm not here to judge anyone, but these hard times we've been through have driven us, some of us, to some unhealthy coping techniques. And science can help us find the best, healthiest coping techniques. Exercise, fantastic for stress management, cognition, and happiness. Talking with a friend, too often we isolate in hard times. We turn to our devices or phones. If you had to boil the science of happiness down to one word, it might be relationships. We are social creatures and we need each other. And the best investment we can make is investing in the quality of our relationships, which is why I'm gonna come back to that in a minute as well. But when it comes to, to coping with stress, connecting with others, talking with a friend, great stress coping technique. And third, mindfulness, meditation, being in the present moment. Doesn't have to be weird or spiritual if somebody listening has never tried it, but that practicing mindful awareness is a great way of coping with hardship. So all of that adds up to subdue stress. Theme two is something we already talked about, positive attitude. Again, not artificially positive, not faking it, not over the top Pollyanna positive, but being as optimistic as possible, being as grateful as possible and more, seeing the best in your colleagues, seeing the best in yourself works to boost happiness and well-being. Third theme I call flow to goals. The science says that progress towards clear and meaningful goals is among one of the best things we can do to boost our well-being at work. And if we focus completely on something challenging but possible, 
for 20 minutes or more, we end up in that delightfully focused zone that scientists call flow, where everything is clicking, you lose a sense of time. If you've ever looked at the time and said, oh, that time already, I gotta go, you've been in flow. Super happy, super productive, and by the way, new studies have shown a great way for getting through hard times like we've been through lately. Fourth and final theme for happiness, is revitalize relationships or prioritize people, however you want to think of it. Investing in the quality of your relationships with other people is probably for most of us, most of the time, everyone's different, but for most of us, most of the time, the single most important thing for our happiness is the quality of our relationships. So that's a lot, and those are just categories, and that's half of the engagement in a happiness picture. If a company said, what's the first thing we should do to help get on a great place to work list, I would say focus on the quality of relationships at work. Okay. Not make clear goals, as many business coaches would suggest, is the first thing you need to do. That's the first thing on the engagement side. Uh, on the engagement side, I talk about goals, alignment, progress, growth, appreciation, people. There's lots of specifics I could run through there some of what you do will get you both engagement and happiness. So using strengths at work is a great example. If you help people identify what they're best at, what their colleagues are best at, and get everyone doing more of that more often, you'll gain both engagement and happiness. So goals are great. It's just if we're talking about happiness, first and foremost, relationships. Okay, so I'm not sure what category this would, would go into, but recently I spent a little bit of time cleaning the carpet in the house. So, you know, here's this machine, you know, puts out water and sucks it up and stuff like that. And it takes quite a bit of time and you have to go slowly to do it. And I can remember also when I built a house and was painting and staining all the things, I found it tremendously relaxing. I don't know if it's a form of meditation I'm doing or what it is, but it's a very repetitive task that I honestly don't have to really think about. And it is relaxing. What, what, what is that? It, it is just that. It's, it's relaxation. So, so if you look more deeply at the model of flow by scientists whose name is almost impo impossible to pronounce or spell, but uh, Csikszentmihalyi is loosely speaking his name, how he coaches us to say it. He has a rich model of flow. And basically, when you end up in that focused zone called flow, you're doing something challenging but possible. High level of challenge, high level of skill to meet that challenge, right? What you're talking about is, is sort of the opposite end of that <laughs> spectrum, which is not bad. It's not yeah. bad. It's low challenge with a high amount of focus is relaxing. So flow is not very relaxing. It's challenging and yet it's delightful you're sort of at the other end of the challenge spectrum. If you're focused, which you need to be to clean that carpet or paint that wall, right? Because you can paint the trim when you don't mean to. or so. <laughs> so you do have to be focused, but it's not that hard. It puts us into a more relaxed version of flow, which is a very pleasant place to be. And by the way, many of us need to relax more. So finding something that gets you into that kind of relaxed flow, relaxation zone, wonderful. Again, science can guide us towards better choices. What a lot of people do to relax is watch television. The data says, mm, choose carefully, 
a little bit of engaging television is okay. But if you watch a lot of television, you're going to end up unhappy. The data is clear. Every, again, everyone's different. But we we think we want relaxation to be happy. Like, please let me lie around sipping Mai Tais on a beach for months on end. And I know a, probably a bunch of us, including me right now, we've been under so much stress. It's like, please try me. I'll, I'll, I'll take it, right? <laughs> but if we actually got complete relaxation for months on end, we'd find that we're bored and depressed. What actually makes us happy tends to be more challenge. Now, I'm guessing you enjoyed that relaxation, and a lot of your listeners would as well, because you've got plenty of challenge at work. Yes. So painting is a way to relax, right? So it's all, well, a lot of it is about balance. Well, another way of relaxing that, that we've talked about in the past that uh, factors in as well is playing a game. Uh, strategy games in particular are something that I've liked, chess and checkers and backgammon and other things. Some of it is very rote with a game like backgammon. In this position, you do this. Uh, I recently watched the series uh, The Gambit, you know, which about chess and, yeah. you know, some bad behaviors and some good heroic behaviors in the end. So games can be a great way to focus. They require strat they require high skill level in order to participate in them. And that focus helps relax. And you can do that just for fun or you can do that in the business world. And, and you've got some games in particular that you've made available uh, for people to help them at work. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so so I have two things related on that subject. One is this card game called Choose Happiness at Work, uh, which dare I bring up Cards Against Humanity, which is a very inappropriate game, for, certainly for a business context. Uh, a bit of a similar play mechanic, uh, some, some rule changes and all the content is different. So Choose Happiness at Work has a bunch of problems human happiness related problems that come up at work and then over a hundred science-based solutions, things that science of bad will make us be happier at work. So it's a way for people to learn about each other and learn about solving real problems using science at work. So I've used this a lot in workshops and uh, it's fun and people learn uh, about the science of happiness and each other at the same time. In general, games are wonderful. I'm mean, a huge game fan. Uh, Csikszentmihalyi, the scientist who leads the research on float, specifically talks about games being good for getting you into flow. Because part of what you need for flow is, again, high level of challenge, high level of immersion. And part of what helps with all of that is a lot of feedback. So games are really good at giving you a lot of immediate feedback. Is what I'm doing working or not working? I'm hearing eh, bad sounds on a video game or bing! point positive sounds. Oh, I'm getting feedback immediately in what I'm doing. So it's a great way to get in the flow. And then since I'm already shamelessly self-promoting, uh, we wrote a book. I co-authored this with Kristen Tuhill, who's about to earn her PsyD. All work and some play future-proof your career through games. Basically, what what we explain more of in the book is that games provide what game designers like me call a magic circle a safe place to play. So at work, it can be hard to feel safe all the time, right? If you walk up to your boss's boss and say, hey, I think you're doing things, uh, I think you could be doing things much better and here's how, that could have very bad repercussions for you depending on the culture, the environment, and the person. In a game, it's just a game. 
So you're safe to play. It provides what psychologists and researchers call psychological safety, that magic circle. It's just a game. We're just playing. So if you're playing Choose Happiness at Work or any other game at work, it frees you up to laugh and take a chance and learn something and poke at your boss's boss a little bit because it's just a game. And so it provides a tremendous learning opportunity. We don't learn when we're stressed. We learn much better when we're relaxed. So that magic circle, that game environment helps us relax, which helps us learn and innovate. You just told me something that I was uh, going to ask about. So trash talk is okay. Trash <laughs> talk is part of the fun of having a, a game going on. <laughs> In fact, it's one of the differences of this game and Cards Against Humanity or Apples to Apples is the original, uh, the originator of this play mechanic where someone tosses out a card and other people are trying to provide matches for that card, so to speak. Um, in either of those games, you're not allowed to advocate for your solution, but um, I'll, I'll randomly pick a problem and a solution and explain the trash talking here. So this random problem I happen to pick is, is each afternoon I feel a big drop in energy. So in Choose Happiness at Work, you play your solutions face up and you're allowed and even encouraged to lobby for them because it helps us learn about how each other thinks as well. And we give a point for best solution. We almost also give a point, uh, the judge can give a point for most creative or funny. So Paul, you might play name it to tame it. You might say, hey, Stephanie, you just need, need to recognize that you have a big drop. You need to name that and that's gonna help you. Step one is it. recognizing you have a problem. Yeah, exactly. And I say, no, 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 Stephanie, you don't want to listen to Paul. That's a garbage answer. You want to go with no device light at night. What's happening to you is you're looking at your phone late at night, and so you're not sleeping well. This is going to help you much more with that drop in energy than name entertainment. And then you might counter back, you know, like, oh, Scott thinks he's so smart, but really, are you going to do that or are you going to keep looking at you? You just need to name entertainment. And somebody else says, yeah, you need to nurture hope for better times and it that it's that discussion and banter in a playful, safe area that can help us learn more about each other and how we think than if you're not allowed to talk about your answers. Yeah. So we, we talked about focus and we talked about flow. And one of the things that I'm involved in a lot of my career is safety and dealing with distractions while you're driving in particular. Absolutely. And so I'm wondering what the science is telling us right now about how to deal with distractions uh, in our in our life. It's so easy to look at that phone uh, while you're driving. Uh, you listen to it and you're automatically uh, upset or you have a dog in your lap of all things. Uh, what What do we know from science about how to deal with distractions? Oh, we know it's hard. That's for sure. Right. Uh, so brains hate uncertainty. So if you hear your phone go, bing, just got a text message. That trigger that we talked about earlier. Exactly, exactly. You have a habit, good call, Paul. When you hear that sound, you always, almost always, look at your phone and resolve the uncertainty. Who texted me and what did they say? So if you're driving and you hear that text sound, oh, it takes enormous self-discipline not to pick up your phone, right? Furthermore, app designers, game designers, software designers like me, 
we know how to hook you, right? We know <laughs> that if we put a little red icon and a number on it, oh, you've got two notifications in this app, Paul. Again, uncertainty, it's red, so it's encouraging you to take action. You almost have to look at that phone, right? You and your listeners don't need me to tell you, it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, driving distracted is a dangerous, dangerous thing to do, and it is not worth it. So I'm going to draw on the Heath brothers here. Uh, for those who don't know, the Heath brothers are both academics who write research-based uh, books, such as Made to Stick, and specifically the one I'm going to talk about is Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. They draw on the research to say, when we want to make a change, such as don't look at my phone while driving, one of the things we want to do, they call shape the path, make it easy. Now, if you'll indulge me going into a bit of a metaphor here, I think this is worth it. They adopt a metaphor that a wonderful scientist named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, uses in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. He describes the human brain as elephant and rider. That is, the rider is our prefrontal cortex, our logical control center, our inner CEO, as I call it, because it's responsible for executive functions. So our riders like to think I'm in they're in charge. I'm a logical person. I make logical decisions, and I'm in charge of this person and this brain here. Yeah, maybe, but that rider is specifically about six neurons thick, and it's over what Jonathan Haidt and then the Heath brothers call the elephant, which is the rest of your brain. And the rider likes to think it's in charge, but at the end of the day, the elephant is going where the elephant wants to go, which is why we make choices we know we shouldn't sometimes, including looking at that phone when we get a text when we're driving. So shape the path is about make it easy for the elephant to do the right thing. If you don't want to look at your phone while driving, lock it in the trunk. Put it in airplane mode. Um, make it harder for yourself and harder for app designers like me to distract you. Yeah, the thing that's uh, most popular right now is sensing that you're moving faster than you could be running. And so you must be driving in a car and you disable everything in that. So there's a lot of things going on there. We, we talked about triggers and we talked about rewards. And one of the things that's been fun for me is as a grandfather now to re-see and have the time to watch children growing. I was too busy working when my children were young. And, and I'm amazed at how much we encourage uh, any accomplishment, no matter how small it is. And I relate that to... The reason people leave work and leave a job, the most common reason is they aren't appreciated. So how, obviously they're not happy because they aren't appreciated. Uh, what, what does the brain science tell us about that and what we should be doing in the business world to make people feel appreciated or help them be appreciated? We can't yeah. make them do anything. <laughs> right, good point. So. The way I put it in my engagement workshops is people rarely quit organizations. They almost always quit a boss. To your point, we leave when we aren't feeling appreciated. We leave when we feel we're being berated unfairly, treated unfairly, etc. So I tell audiences, most people don't quit an organization. They quit a boss. 
don't be that boss. I will say in workshops, hands up if you've ever quit a boss. You know, I cite some statistics. Um, the statistics are roughly three quarters of people report that they've quit a boss. And I say, hands up if you've quit a boss. And consistently, a huge number of hands go up. And then I say, don't be that boss, right? Okay. So, Again, going back to my employee engagement frame, framework, I use mind the gaps. So I use, uh, so if, if anyone's ever been to London, you may have heard mind the gap, which means don't get your leg between the train and the train station. Um, for employee engagement, I use gap as an acronym twice. First for goals, alignment and progress. We've talked about that a little bit. Second growth, appreciation and people. So appreciation is one of the main things that can help somebody be engaged. Yes, we work for the money, but when we hear from a boss or a stakeholder, hey, great job, boy, it means so much to us emotionally, right? More than the money ever will. So appreciation matters. And I make the point that it's not just appreciating people and what they do, it's also appreciating their ideas. So Gallup measures employee engagement with what they call the Q12. It's 12 statements you strongly agree with or disagree with. These are the same people that do lots of polling and interviews. Gallup has thousands and thousands of questions in their database, and they found the 12 that are most likely to indicate employee engagement and therefore performance. And one of those 12 questions statements that you agree with is, at work, my ideas seem to count. So note that this, the statement is not at work, everyone listens to every idea I have and immediately implements it. It's not that. It's, am I seriously considering your input? Am I appreciating your input? Am I appreciating your ideas? Now, I think everybody on the planet wants their ideas appreciated. But if you think about this generationally, it's even more important now. So I paired up with a Portland State University professor to put together a workshop on generations. And it's hard to talk about this without insulting entire generations at once, but I'm going to do my best. Gen Xers like me were not raised by always super attentive parents, right? I was raised a fair bit by Brady Bunch and Hogan's Heroes growing up. So my ideas were not always taken very seriously in full consideration, right? My parents were busy. I'm not blaming my parents, whatever. It's a generational thing. But because of that, when Gen Xers like me had kids, a lot of Gen X parents became very attentive, helicopter parents, right? Like, tell me about it, honey. I want to hear every idea. So when I said, I'm going to build a rocket and fly to the moon, my parents were like, that's nice. Have fun, kiddo. And if a millennial growing up said, I'm going to build a rocket and go to the moon, their parent was much more likely to say, okay, tell me about it. Have you thought about aerodynamics? What about fuel supply? And they're really engaging with them on this discussion, right? So imagine you're a millennial. You've been raised your whole life getting all your ideas taken seriously, and then you get to work and you get blown off. It is incredibly disengaging for a millennial who's used to having their ideas taken seriously to not have their having their ideas appreciated. So forgive me if that was a long answer to that, but appreciation matters. And it's not just, hey, thanks for doing that great job on that presentation, you did really well. It's also, I'm really glad you spoke up with that idea. I see a lot of promise there. I do see some risks. Have you thought about those? Appreciate people and their ideas. That's great. Um 
people are stressed by change, yet change is something we often have to do in business and people get their blinders on. Well, we, we don't do it that way. That's not what we do here. And, and a lot of my career has been based on trying to invent new products that aren't going to come to market for seven or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I deal with startups that have these great ideas and they're not going to be successful for a long time. So what, what do, what is, you do innovation net uh, workshops, I know as well. So what is the brain science telling you and how does happiness fit into get, getting people to open up to other ideas of how to do things and then actually engaging to work on those ideas? Yeah, a great topic. Obviously, innovation is so important right now with all the change going on. So several things to say about that. First of all, happiness and creativity support each other. Which is causing which is not a hundred percent clear, but but there's strong correlational evidence at least that people who are happier are more creative. People who are engaged are more creative, and vice versa. If you feel like you get to be creative, that's engaging as well. So again, if you're toward fight or flight, if you're fearful, if you're unhappy at work, you're not creating. You're thinking about run or freeze or fight, but not, hey, we could invent this new, right? If you see a mountain lion on a trail in the Cascade Mountains, the appropriate survival response is not, look at how the mountain lion, the sort of darker tan on top, and then it lightens as it goes down. That'd be a really interesting design for a new web page. You're dead, right? So under fear and stress, you're not supposed to be coming up with new creative ideas. You're supposed to just think about fight, flight, or freeze. So when you're happier, you, you're more about maximizing opportunities, inventing new ways forward. You're, you're, the brain is fundamentally in minimize risk or maximize reward. Guess which is more innovative? Maximizing reward, right? So we need to feel happy. We also need to feel safe. Again, back to psychological safety. If we feel like it is safe to take interpersonal risks, we will be more creative. So psychological safety is very important. Some people out there listening may know that Google, this came out of academic research, and then Google did what was called Project Aristotle. Google threw a lot of experts, PhD scientists, and data at what makes our team successful and less successful at Google. And nothing, they were looking at education levels and diversity and physical setups and all kinds of variables. And nothing was really making a big difference until they looked at psychological safety. And that became the most successful factor in team success. So the opposite of psychological safety is impression management. What are they going to think if I speak up? If I ask this question, am I going to look stupid? That's impression management. And if you're doing that, you're minimizing risk and not being very creative. I don't wanna share this idea because I might get teased or mocked or punished for it. If people feel psychological safety, then they're going towards maximize reward. And they're gonna say in a meeting, hey, Paul, what you just said about driver safety made me think about the visual field for drivers. What if we invented a product that added to the visual field to keep their focus there and prevent them from getting distracted? I'm obviously making this up, but psychological safety empowers people to speak up with their ideas. You got to feel safe to want to maximize reward and to share those ideas you come up with. You, you just gave me a 
new way of looking at a very popular topic right now. Uh, I Everybody has the idea that, well, if we have one of every type of person in a team, it's going to be a better team. And what I just heard about diversity and inclusion from what you just said is it, it isn't that we have somebody of every type, but that every type's input is appreciated and valued. And that creates it more than just, well, I have to have a soccer team and I have to have one of every type of person on a soccer team. That's not going to make a winning soccer team, in my opinion. Right. So there's, there's all kinds of diversity and inclusion, right? And to be crystal clear, I have some expertise here. I don't claim to be the world's best expert on diversity and inclusion. So others may have other data to share here. But, but certainly diversity and inclusion relate to psychological safety. Part of how you know you have a psychologically safe environment, according to researcher Amy Edmondson, who leads the research in this field, is that unique talents are celebrated. Right. So, again, are your ideas appreciated? And the more unique you are, the more we want to listen to your idea. I do a workshop that I call Truly Tapping Your Strengths and Those of Your Team. And we often look at a grid of here are the strengths that people might have, here are people's names, and who has which strengths. And I go through an exercise where I get people looking at all that strengths data. And inevitably, there's going to be one, only one person on the team with a strength in their top five. So let's say, Paul, you and I are working on a team together. We look at the data and only Jose has competitive competition in his strengths. Jose might say, hey, we should benchmark ourselves against other companies doing similar work. And because you and I and nobody else has competition in our strengths, Jose might suffer from tyranny of the majority. That is, all of us are like, nah, who cares about the competition? Let's focus on what we're doing in here. In that workshop and, and related to diversity and inclusion and psychological safety, if someone's speaking up from a unique perspective, the rest of us need to say, here, here, let's really listen to Jose here because he's the only one who thinks this way. If we want to innovate, we need to consider all the options. Back to the Heath brothers, they wrote another great research book based book called Decisive. Decisive summarizes the decision-making research and among other uh, key points in the book, it says we make better decisions when we consider more options. So a lot of the things we're talking about are starting to connect here, right? We're going to make decisions, better decisions when we consider more options. We're going to consider more options when we have a diverse team and not just diverse in gender or age or skin color, race, but diverse in the way they think as well. So let's get a diverse team. Let's appreciate everyone's ideas. And then we're going to consider more options. And because of that, we're going to make better decisions and be more innovative. Okay. So we're out of time, honestly. This uh, We could talk a long time, and I hope people will reach out to you. Uh, I wanted to compliment you on one thing that I saw you doing in terms of creating a trigger, reward, and... Uh, appreciation is repeatedly you used my name. I'm not very good at that, Scott, uh, <laughs> but that is one of those things I know that that shows people that they're being appreciated and it can bring them back from wherever they are when they hear their name because we all respond to it. So I'm assuming for sure that people are going to want to reach out to you and 
uh, possibly engage with you. So how can they reach you, Scott? Thank you so much, Paul. The, the best way to reach me is through my site, happybrainscience.com. Uh, we have a monthly newsletter that we send out. We send out a happiness starter kit. There's a lot of free resources on there, blogs, videos, eBooks, all free. Uh, and of course, we do get paid by some of those clients that you mentioned earlier. So however we can help people, look, I, I founded Happy Brain Science because after I discovered the science of happiness, I felt like I want this and the world wants this. The world needs this. We can make better choices that lead to better lives and more success. And fundamentally, more happiness leads to brains that work better. So I hope people will choose happiness in part by going to happybrainscience.com, checking out our recommended reading list or anything else that might help them learn more and apply more the science of happiness at work. Great. So thank you, Scott. And thanks everyone for listening. Uh, I'm Paul Menig with Business Accelerants, and I'm hoping to work to help people grow their business uh, so that they can have more money from their business, which allows them to have more time for their lives and to use that money in the best ways that they see fit. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much, Paul.